Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www. SWRB.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the most important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature to study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. I know to SWRB's reading of Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is the way the truth, and the life, and no man come unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Calvin's Dedication To the most illustrious Prince, D. Frederick, Lord Palatine of the Rhine, and Elector of the Roman Empire, etc., and his most beloved and his most benevolent Lord, John Calvin, wishes all happiness. As your heroic valor, most illustrious Prince, has been acknowledged by superior men and competent judges, and especially your singular piety, your labor to cherish and to promote true religion and uniform moderation through life, and also your great courtesy, such as can hardly be found in a private individual, and which I have not only known by report, but have also myself experienced. I have long wished by some public act to testify to posterity the high regard I entertain for you being not satisfied with having it only in secret. This is well known to the, double, to the no, noble-minded Edward, the Count of Esbach, whom I have consulted on the subject. But to discharge this duty at this time, not only an opportunity seems to be offered to me, but a certain necessity appears to constrain me. For, as you have reverently embraced the sound and orthodox doctrine concerning the Holy Supper of Christ, and have not hesitated freely and wisely to avow the same in your dominion, so turbulent and unreasonable men rage against you, as though you had upset all Germany. Hence they rush headlong to assail your highness and with violent clamors, and as they cannot prevail by authority and power, being full of presumption and insolence, they hesitate not to vomit forth their curses, of which men in their right mind would be ashamed, and not only so, but as it is not in their power to kill you, they fabricate shameful rumors respecting your death, as though a plot of lies were sufficient a plot of flies were sufficient to darken the sun. And you indeed, most illustrious prince, according to the magnanimity of your mind, in accordance with the high dis- dignity in which God has placed you, do altogether disregard their mad conduct. But as they so busily labor to provoke you, and at the same time bring in my name to create an ill will to you, 
I have thought it my duty in refuting these calumnies to set up as a shield against them the very name which they wish to make so odious. For certainly they who are wholly unworthy that your highness should raise your little finger against them or utter the smallest word. For I indeed disposed to expostulate with them on account of their madness in hating so much a man who has done something for the church of God and of whose labors they avail themselves with the unlearned, though they acknowledge it not, they would have no plea for their ingratitude. While then they endeavor by bringing forward Calvinism to affix to your highness some mark of infamy, they do nothing more than betray their own perversity and also their folly and disgrace. But if they think they can gain something among those who are like themselves, my voice, on the other hand, in speaking of your just praises, will, I hope, be attended to by the godly, the well-informed, and men of calm minds and sound judgment. Unprincipled men of this character do indeed pretend and loudly exclaim that they fight for God and their country. Footnote. For heirs at focus, for their altars and hearths, the French version is, for their life and salvation. End footnote. But whether it be so, it is easy for anyone to judge, and I will not indeed discuss at large their delirious notions, as the greater part of them understand not what they vainly talk. I will only touch briefly on the main points in which we differ from their masters, for whom, nevertheless, I have a sincere regard. But we really feed in the Holy Supper on the flesh and blood of Christ, no otherwise than as bread and wine are the ailments of our bodies, we freely conf confess. If a clearer explanation is asked, we say that the substance of Christ's flesh and blood is our spiritual life, and that is communicated to us under the symbols of bread and wine. For Christ, in instituting the, the mystery of the supper, promised nothing falsely, nor mocked us with a vain show, but represented by external signs what he has really given us. Now the question rests on the mode of the communication, and hence the conflict arises, because we refuse to subscribe to their fancy respecting a local presence. We say that though Christ is in heaven, yet through the hidden and incomprehensible power of his spirit, this favor comes to us, that his flesh becomes life to us, so that we become flesh of his flesh and bones of his bones. Ephesians V. 30 By them, on the contra contrary, it is maintained that except Christ comes down to earth. I'm sorry, that was Ephesians 5.30. By them, on the contrary, it is maintained that except Christ comes down on earth, there is no participation. That they may, however, get rid of the absurdity of a local presence, it has been found necessary to fabricate, fabricate the strange notion of ubiquity, which, if we think it is not possible to reconcile to the principles of faith, we must beg them, at least, to pardon our ignorance. Here we follow not our own understanding, but according to the knowledge given us from above, we cannot comprehend that it is at all agreeable to Scripture to say that the body of Christ is everywhere. Both Christ himself and his apostles clearly show that the immensity of God does not belong to the flesh. A personal union is what they teach, and no one except Eutyches has hitherto thought that the two natures become so blended that when Christ became man, 
the attributes of deity were communicated to his human nature. I am not indeed disposed to raise, to raise an odium against them by means of the man who has been condemned. They are yet to be reminded to think more attentively and to consider how contention leads astray even good, learned, and acute men when they are led away only by a desire to defend their cause. Doubtless, the best and the shortest way of confronting Nestorius at the Council of Ephesus would have been to say that personal union communicates to two natures what is peculiar to each. To adduce this, that, to adduce this no one thought of doing on account of its absolute absurdity. I therefore greatly wonder that they who oppose us do not consider into what labyrinth they plunge themselves. For if the infinity of God appertains to the flesh of Christ, because God was manifested in the flesh, with equal reason, his divinity may be said to have grieved and to have been thirsty and to have been subject to death and, in short, to have died. For they cannot escape, as it is a similar mode of reasoning. Christ, while yet immortal, declared that he knew not when the day of judgment would be. Does he not in those words clearly and distinctly ascribe something to his human nature which cannot justly be ascribed to his divinity? What they bring forward as the communication of properties, it is unreasonable, and what I may say without offending them, they mistake in a manner that is very simple and plain. For to ascribe what is peculiar to deity to the Son of Man, and to again to attribute to deity what belongs only to humanity is very improper and rash. To prevent the ignorant from stumbling by blending together different things, and to take away from the dishonest any occasion for contending, Orthodox writers have called this figure the communication of properties. Footnote. Non-English words. Which may be rendered the communication of peculiarities. Editor. End footnote. What they have said of certain expressions has been with little thought applied to the subject. While Christ was on earth, he said, that the Son of Man was in heaven, that no one ill-informed might think Christ's body to be infinite, it has been deemed necessary to meet this case by a plain admonition, that on, on account of the unity of person what is suitable only to divinity has been said of the Son of Man. Paul says, as it is recorded by Luke, that God redeemed the church by his own blood. Acts 20.28 Lest no one may hence conceive that God has blood, the same admonition ought to be sufficient to untie the knot. For as Christ was man and God, what is peculiar to his human nature is ascribed to his divinity, as it was the Father's design to employ this figure of speech for the purpose of teaching the simple and ignorant. It is absurd and even shameful to apply it for a different purpose, and to say that the communication of properties is the real blending of two natures. But Christ, it is said, sits at the Father's right hand, which is to be taken as meaning everywhere, confined within no limits. I indeed allow that God's right hand is unlimited, and that wherever it is, there is the kingdom of, God, of Christ, which is metaphorically represented in Scripture by the term sitting. For whatever is declared of God is beyond controversy to be now ascribed to Christ, and therefore to sit, which means to govern the world, is what Christ has in common with the Father, 
and still more, as the Father by him sustains the world, wills all things by his power, and especially manifests the presence of his grace in governing his church. He may be said, strictly speaking, to reign in his own person. It hence follows that he in a manner is everywhere, for he can be limited to no place who sustains and protects all parts of heaven and earth, and rules and regulates by his power all things above and below. When now I name Christ, I include the whole person of the only begotten Son as manifested in the flesh. He, I say, God and man, is everywhere as to his authority and incomprehensible power and infinite glory, according to what the faithful experience by evident effects, as they know and feel his presence. It is not then without reason that Paul declares that he dwells in us, Ephesians 3.17. But to distort what is said of his, infinite, of his infinite power, which is evident in his spiritual gifts, in the invisible aid which he affords, and in the hope of our salvation, and to apply it to his flesh, is by no means reasonable or consistent. I wish that many of those who were with little reason angry with us were at least to recall to mind the common and notable saying used in the papal schools, Christ is whole everywhere, but not altogether. Footnote. Christus ubit totus est, sed non totum. L-I-B-3 S-E-N-T-E-N D-I-S-T 22 and footnote. They may reject it as it is in the barbarous language of Peter Lombard, which is not present to their contender and to their tender and delicate ears. It is yet wisely expressed from whomsoever it may have come, and I willingly adopt it. But I wonder whence is this daintiness. Seeing the recantation of Berengaris delights Westphalus and those who are like him, that Christ's body is broken by the teeth and digested by the stomach. Why is this sober distinction to be loathed, that Christ our mediator is everywhere entire, but not as to his flesh, which is confined within certain limits, while his power is infinite, is infinite and its operation felt on earth as well as in heaven? There are two words commonly used, union, Unio, and unity, unitas. The first is applied to the two natures, and the second to the person alone. To assert the unity of the flesh and of divinity, those would be ashamed to do. If I am, de- if I am not deceived, who yet inconsiderately adopts that this absurdity? For except the flesh differs and is distinct in its own peculiar properties from the divine nature, they are by blending together become one. They, cavilling, facetiously ask, In what region of the imperial heaven does Christ sit? Let them indeed enjoy these fine speculations. I am taught by the Holy Spirit that he is above all heavens. Ephesians 4.10 According to the common mode of speaking in scripture, I call whatever is beyond the world heaven. Hence it is enough for me when Christ is to be sought, that our minds are to be raised above, that they may not remain on the earth and be entangled in gross superstitions. This, then, is the sum and substance of the whole controversy, which the chief leaders of the adverse party too pertinaciously agitate, 
unless indeed, if we add another subject, that the wicked, as they contend, partake of the flesh and blood of Christ, no less than the true servants of God. And we indeed allow that they are equally offered to both, and that whatever may be the difference between men, yet God ever continues like himself the same, and that hence the difference in those who presumptuously thrust themselves does not arise from the nature of the sacraments. When, therefore, Christ gives his body to the unworthy, the difference proceeds from the manner in which it is received. But we deny that those are capable of receiving Christ, whom the devil holds as his slave, and in whom he has his habitation. We do not, however, reject the usual mode of speaking that Christ is received by them sacramentally, provided absurd interpreters pervert not the words of Augustine, in which sacramental eating is said to be the reception of the substance without the grace. But this is a foolish remark, and known and unknown to Augustine. The reason they adduce, as it is weak, may easily be refuted. They say that Christ came not only for salvation to the elect, but also for con- condemnation to the reprobate, because the gospel being not received but rejected is the silver of death unto death to those who perish. But who has ever heard that the participation of Christ produces death? But if Christ but be the occasion of condemnation to unbelievers because he is rejected by them, I see not how it can be that they procure for themselves condemnation by receiving his flesh. They answer and say that they are, nevertheless, closed up so as to not omit his grace. But that they may gain credit to what they say, they must first prove their strange notion that those who are alienated from Christ eat his flesh, while it is to those without life, destitute of its own virtue and empty. I have now faithfully and plainly explained why they who boast themselves to be the the followers of Luther so hastily contend with us at this day. For the same reason, therefore, force their excretions on Philip Melanchthon, now dead, a man who, for his incomparable knowledge in the highest branches of literature, his deep piety, and other endowments, deserves to be remembered by all ages, and whom they have hitherto regarded as their leader. And it is strange that in order to obtain the favor of the public, they pretend to adopt that noble confession of Augsburg, of which he is especially the author, and ought to be deemed its true interpreter. I regard them as turbulent and unprincipled men who possess no common courtesy and feel no shame. But there are those who, in this respect, are different and observe some moderation. And yet I have a just reason to complain, for some of them have acted so unfairly as to give my name in what they have published in German and to withhold it in the Latin editions. Now this is to curse the deaf. But to omit other things... I revert again to their violent clamors, which are similar to the clamors of those frantic zealots mentioned by Josephus, those whose, ex- whose excesses a cruel war was kindled, which involved Judea in entire ruin. The Bell, Jude, Lib. 14 and 15. They can find nothing more atrocious by which they can irritate your highness, most illustrious prince, than the word Calvinism. But whence this bitter hatred towards me 
it is not difficult to, conje to conjecture. For as they have thought the shortest way to victory to be by suppressing and concealing the real state of the case, and by dazzling the eyes of the simple, it is no wonder that they burn with rage when the clouds of ignorance in which they securely exulted were dissipated, and what especially drives them even to madness is the fact that they find that the whole subject is fully and really known by you, so that the doctrine for which they triumphed while it was unknown, having obtained the patronage of high authority, and being supported by the pious and strong defense of a wise prince, makes a freer progress. It would indeed be superfluous to exhort you, who are of yourself sufficiently disposed to, to persevere, that you may, however, disregard their impotency and pursue the, the object so happily as well as judiciously undertaken. It seems not an, an useless attempt con to confirm you in your course by leaving a pledge of the high regard I entertain for you. And I thought it no active than gratitude for your incredible courtesy to dedicate your renowned name, my commentaries on Jeremiah. I indeed confess that it has not been elucidated with that care which so excellent a book deserves. For as I delivered the lectures from the pulpit, they were taken from my mouth, and I have indeed been before ashamed that what might have been more accurately re revised and polished by a longer meditation has come forth to light. I am also afraid lest the malevolent should accuse me of arrogance for having obtruded on the public discourses extemporaneous and unwritten and designed for a small auditory. It is easy to reply to the latter charge, for the first volume was sent to press against my will. That I may not, however, be without excuse, what I have to say is that I have been led by the judgment of others. I hear of impartial and plain readers who declare that they have received no small benefit from this kind of, la of labor. And further, some think that a good end may be attained by making known my extempore mode of teaching, as its simplicity may cure many who are too anxious to dis of display of that vice. Though learning and aptness to teach cannot satisfy all, I have yet carefully endeavored that religion and faith should not be found wanting by the impartial and well-disposed. Nor do I, indeed, fear the charge of arrogance when I fully avow that I would have by no means suffered this book to go forth to the public had I not thought it would be useful and profitable to the Church of God. But it may be that some rigid and severe critics will deem it a present unworthy of your highness, by relying on your rare courtesy, most illustrious prince, I hope it will be favorably accepted. And if Jeremiah himself were now alive on earth, he would add, If I am not deceived, his recommendation, for he would acknowledge that his prophecies have been explained to me not less honestly than reverently, and further, that they have been usefully accommodated to present circumstances. I fear not, however, over-anxious to find an excuse, provided I know that I have done no wrong, except through an excessive desire to testify the veneration with which I regard your highness. But to admit now that I have slightly mentioned at the beginning, I should condemn myself for ingratitude, were I not to consider myself under obligations to you for being so ready and disposed to receive the Christian exiles who flee to you,
What is the saying of a heathen woman as mentioned by a poet? Being acquainted with evil, I learn to aid the miserable. Footnote. Non-English words. End footnote. Let all who worship God and serve Christ be not ashamed under similar circumstances to be at least of the same mind. As my power of aiding is not equal to my wish, it becomes me at least to regard every kindness shown to them as done to myself. Thirty years have passed away since my voluntary exile from France, because thence were exiled the truth of the gospel, gospel, pure religion, and the true worship of God. I am now become so inured to my peregrine nation that I feel no desire to return to my country. I am indeed here so far a stranger, though once banished, I was yet so recalled that I never feel ashamed, but they deem me no more a foreigner than if I could name my ancestors as the citizens of this place. But the more kindly God has dealt with me, the greater concern ought I to feel for my brethren from France as well as from Flanders, and as they have been received with the same kindness by your highness, this stimulates and constrains me to avow my gratitude to one so much entitled to it. Nor let it cause you any regret, most illustrious prince, that you have been sometimes deceived in foreigners and indeed in men of our language, but go on in your wonted course of benevolence. All know how basely you have been deceived by that most audacious and unprincipled man, and at the same time vile, proud, and perfidious. In short, a monster made up of a mass of filthy materials, even Francis Baldwin, and yet a skillful collector of the civil law. <coughs> For having been in the Netherlands, and having, under the pretext of the gospel, been received under your patronage, and being made a professor of the civil law through your liberality in the University of Heidelberg, he ought to have considered himself as altogether bound by kindness to so munificent a prince, but he regarded his elevation as advantageous to those who seek, <coughs> after his own manner, a new situation. Hence, as soon as hope appeared, he deserted his station, having despised the honorable office which he had fraudulently attained, and passed over to the enemies of true and pure religion, the name of which he had assumed. <laughs> and first indeed as though he retained some portion of shame he went on stealthily in a clandestine manner he discussed some treacheries with the cardinal, with the cardinal of Lorraine into whose favor he had insinuated himself the object of the whole was to subvert the churches of France by means of a spurious doctrine and a mixture of ceremonies but as there appeared no reward for masked and hidden perfidy, he not only rushed headlong into open defection, but so insolently boasted of his wickedness that he has surpassed similar apostates in canine wantonness. It is, however, well that the perfidy of one unprincipled man does not stop the course of your kindness towards others, and you have some recompense for your perseverance, for among the ornaments of your of your university are to be found some foreigners well known for their high character whom it is unnecessary for me to name. Though I can add nothing to the character of your highness either by my praise or by the dedication of this work yet I cannot 
I could not restrain myself from doing what I thought to be my duty. Farewell, most illustrious prince. May God enrich you more and more with his spiritual gifts, keep you long in safety, and render your dignified station prosperous to you and yours. Geneva, July 23, 1568. The printer to the Christian reader. Health. The readers were sufficiently reminded when the lectures of the beloved and learned John Calvin on the Minor Prophets and on Daniel were published, by what means and by whom they had been attained, so that it is no purpose to sing the same song, for so what I'd seem to do, were I again to explain at large what has been before set forth, it is yet unnecessary. If I am not mistaken, to add now that these lectures on Jeremiah and the Lamentations were taken down by our two brethren, John Budius and Charles Johnville, with the same care, fidelity, and diligence as the former lectures, which cannot but appear to everyone who will attentively read them. The Hebrew text has not been inserted, and among other things for this reason, because it is already possessed by those who understand the language, and to others it would be of no advantage. We are also afraid that by increasing the volume and the expense, we should unnecessarily charge the buyer. But that I may not be prolix and tedious, I pass by the great and manifold benefits that may be derived from this volume, which will appear to each one better when it is read, for it is so replete with the precious wealth of heavenly truth <coughs> that from it, as from a storehouse, may be drawn the sum and substance of religion, and so it will be, and it, and so it will no doubt be of great service to the whole Church of God. It remains for you, Christian reader, to ascribe to God alone whatever benefit you may de derive from these commentaries, and to pray for Calvin, who well deserves this from all the godly, until he shall at length enjoy his e eternal inheritance. Make use also, thankfully, of this so valuable a treasure and judge kindly and impartially of what is cordially presented to you. Geneva, July 23, 1576. The prayer which John Calvin was wont to use at the beginning of his lectures. May the Lord grant that we may engage in contemplating the mysteries of his heavenly wisdom with really increasing devotion to his glory and to our edification. Amen. Calvin's Preface to the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah Lecture First After having explained the twelve minor prophets, we reached at length to the end of Daniel. I now undertake to explain the book of Jeremiah, provided life be spared and leisure be given me. But if through God's grace time will be allowed, there will remain still one prophet, that is, Ezekiel, which I hope will be undertaken by a more competent interpreter. As to Jeremiah, it must be observed that he commenced his office as a prophet under Josiah, and in the thirteenth year of his reign, who was a sincere servant of God, and yet the state of things was then very confused. The book of the law was unknown, so that everyone, in, everyone indulged his fancy inventing in inventing many impious forms of worship. No doubt, at a time when such liberty prevailed, there were many turbulent men laboring to pervert the worship of God and pure doctrine. 
and fabricating for themselves many absurd things. For if the priests taught rightly, they must have derived all their knowledge from the law, and though it is probable that the memory of it was not wholly lost, yet a few fragments only remained, so that they could not with certainty learn how the church was to be regulated according to what has been received from above. For it is related in sacred history that the book was found in the 18th year of Josiah, Second Chronicles 34, 8 and 15, so that Jeremiah had been then teaching for four and even for five years. Now this fact clearly proves how great is the carelessness and sloth of men in the great concerns of religion. God had commanded Moses that a copy of the law should not only be kept reverently and carefully in the temple, but also by the kings themselves. Deuteronomy 17.18 And that there was also added a command that the whole law should be read to the people at their festivals. Deuteronomy 31.11 But when the kings departed from the true worship of God, no copy of the law was preserved by them, and at length the whole law became as it were extinct. No doubt this happened through the tyranny of King Manas, who cruelly raged against the priests, and against all the other servants of God. Wherever only a spark of religion appeared, he was intent on slaughter, so that blood, as sacred history testifies, flowed through all the streets of Jerusalem. 2 Kings 21.16 It was then no wonder if he took away from the temple all the copies of the law found there in order to extinguish all memory of true doctrine. However, a book which had been hid was found, as we are told, by the priest Hilkiah. The first thing, then, to be observed is the time when he began to teach. As religion was then so corrupted, and everyone invented errors to suit his humor, the office of Jeremiah must have been hard and arduous. Secondly, the termination of his ministry must be noticed. He says, but from that time he pursued his office until the transmigration. He therefore continued in his course for forty years. We shall hereafter see what hard contests he had to undergo during his life. But had the people been teachable, he could not have performed what God had commanded him without great pain and even weariness. For we shall presently see what was the doctrine which he was commanded to proclaim. As then he was assiduous in his labor for forty years, we hence perceive with what a courageous spirit he was endued. If we further consider what storms had been raised, calculated to cast him down from his high station, and even wholly to drive him from the right way, more clearly still will shine forth the invincible firmness of his mind and his zeal, for he never desisted from executing the office committed to him. We shall further observe that after the city was cut off and the inhabitants of Jerusalem were led captives into Babylon, Jeremiah still continued to discharge his office. He was indeed drawn into Egypt, as we learn from the end of the book, especially chapter XLIV in Roman numerals. Nay, he was taken there by force, while yet he pronounced a curse on all the Jews who sought hiding places in Egypt. Though he was forced to go there, 
yet it much lessened his authority, for we know that, ungod- that ungodly men lay hold on any pretense for evil speaking. There was here a specious pretense. He cursed, they said, all who went to Egypt, and now where does he dwell himself? In Egypt with the other refugees. No doubt the faith of the holy man was shaken by these banterings. Ungodliness had been wanton in all ages. There then, after the destruction of the city, Jeremiah was constrained to bend his course, and it may be that he persevered in his work and labor beyond fifty years. It is said that he was stoned to death, and not unlikely, for he invaded with no less severity against the Jews who had fled into Egypt than against the city while it was standing, and despair might have roused them into madness. It is hence probable that they slew the holy prophet, and thus this lawful because he upbraided them with their miseries, while his object was to correct their perverseness, which was untamable, and this they did not consider. I come now to the contents of the book. As Isaiah and the other prophets spent their labor almost in vain, nothing remained for Jeremiah but briefly to announce the sentence. There is now no pardon, but it is the time of extreme vengeance, for they have too long abused God's forbearance, who has borne with them kindly and even sweetly exhorted them to repent, and testified that he would be exorable and propitious, provided they return to the right way. Since then God's God's kindness has been despised by them, it became necessary for Jeremiah to fulminate against them as men lost and in a hopeless state of perverseness. The main thing then in his teaching was this. It is all over with with the kingdom and the priesthood. For the Jews have so often and in such various ways and for so long a time provoked God's wrath and rejected the pious warnings of his servants. Isaiah also in his time used threatenings, but we see that to migrate what was terrible, some hope of pardon was added whenever he spoke with severity. But after the ten tribes had been carried into exile, and the kingdom had been visited with various calamities, while the Jews still continued impotent, and even hardened themselves more and more under God's scourges, it was necessary, as I have said, that he should deal more sharply with them. God had contended with them by Isaiah and the other prophets. By Jeremiah and also by Ezekiel, he proved them guilty and denounced on them the sentence of condemnation. This difference between the teaching of Isaiah and that of our prophet ought to be noticed. Footnote. Scott says that Jeremiah entered upon the prophetic office almost 70 years after the death of Isaiah. Editor. End footnote. At the same time, that Jeremiah's teaching might not be perfect, it was God's purpose that he should be also the herald of his grace and of the salvation promised in Christ. This exception, however, ought to be borne in mind, that he offered them no hope of mercy until they had suffered the punishment due to their sins. We now then understand what Jeremiah mainly taught. But particulars will be better and more distinctly understood by readers by following the course of the text. And I do not now treat in general of what is to be found in the prophets, for this is what I have done elsewhere. I now then say only that Jeremiah was sent sent by God to proclaim to their people their last calamity, 
and also to speak to them of their future redemption, and at the same time, ever to remind them of the interposition of seventy years in the exile. I come now to the words. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah the son Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anatoth, in the land of Benjamin. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. I have said that it that the time when Jeremiah began to discharge his office of a prophet in God's church is not stated here without reason, and that it was when the state of the people were extremely corrupt, the whole of religion having become vitiated, because the book of the law was lost, for nowhere else can be found the rule according to which God is to be worshipped, nor can right knowledge be obtained from any other source. It was then at the time when impiety had by a long custom prevailed among the Jews, the Jeremiah suddenly came forth. There was then laid on his shoulders the heaviest burden, for many enemies must have risen to oppose him, when he attempted to bring back the people to the pure doctrine of the law, which the greater part were then treading under their feet. He calls himself the son of Hilkiah. The rabbins think that this Hilkiah was the priest by whom the, Mo- the book of Moses was found five years after, but this seems not to me probable. The conjecture also of Jerome is very frivolous, so it concludes that the prophet was a boy when he began to prophesy, because he calls himself, non-English word, nor, a child, a little farther on, as though he did not use the word metaphorically. Footnote. The word does not properly mean a child as in our version, or a pure, as rendered by Calvin, but a youth or rather a young man. Abraham's trained servants were thus called Genesis 14.24, and his servant who dressed the calf for the angels, Genesis 18.7, and his young men who accompanied him to Mount Moriah, Genesis 22.5. Joshua had this name given him when he was attending Moses at the tabernacle, Exodus 33:11. It is rendered non-English word, a youth or a young man, by the Septuagint. The most probable thing is that he was not as Adam Clark supposes, about 14, but a young man verging on maturity. The length of the time during which he prophesied would lead us to conclude that he was young when he was appointed to his office. And footnote. At what age he was called to the prophetic office, we do not know. It is, however, probable that he was of mature age, for it was a work of high authority, and further, had he been a youth, doubtless such a miracle would not have passed over in silence, that is, that he was made a prophet before the age of maturity. With regard to his father, it is nothing strange that the rabbins have regarded him as the high priest, for we know that they are always prone to vain vain boastings. Ambition possessed them, and hence they have said that Jeremiah was the son of the high priest in order to add to the splendor of his character. But what does the prophet himself say? He declares indeed that he was the son of Hilkiah, but does not say that this was the high priest, 
On the contrary, he adds that he was from the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Now we know that this was a mean village, not far from Jerusalem, and, Jerusalem, and Jeremiah says that it was in the tribe of Benjamin. Its nearness to Jerusalem may be gathered from the words of Isaiah, who says that small Anatoth was terrified. Isaiah 10.30 He threatened Jerusalem by saying that the enemy was near. What, he says, is your security? You can hear the noise of your enemies and the groans of your brethren from your very gates, for Anatoth is not far from you, being only three miles distant. Since then Jeremiah only says that he came from Anatoth, why should we suppose him to be the son of the high priest? And frivolous is what the Chaldee paraphraser adds here, that Hilkiah has had possessions in the town of Anatoth, as though it was allowed the priests to possess land. God allowed them only what was necessary to feed their flocks. We may then take it as certain, and what the prophet indeed expressly declares, that he, became, that he came from the village of Anatoth. Footnote. The reasons alleged against Jeremiah being the son of the high priest are by no means conclusive. Indeed, all the circumstances being considered, the probability is in favor of that supposition. The family of the high priest resided no doubt at Anatoth, what is said in 1 Kings 2.26, respecting Abiathar as a is a proof of this. That the high priest resided at Jerusalem during the term of his office forms no objection, nor is the genealogy of the high priest as given in 1 Chronicles 6.1-17 any objection. For though in verse 13 Azariah is said to be the son of Hilkiah, Yet Jeremiah might have been one of his younger sons. Most commentators agree indeed with Calvin, Gautakar, Henry, Scott, Blaney, etc. But they adduce no satisfactory reasons sufficient to invalidate the opinion of the rabbins and the intimation contained in the Targum. And this opinion is what the translators of the Geneva Bible have adopted. Editor. End footnote. He further says that he was of the priestly order. Hence, the prophetic office was more suitable to them, to him, than to many of the other prophets, such as Amos and Isaiah. God took Isaiah from the court, as he was of the royal family, and made him a prophet. Amos was in a different situation. He was taken from the shepherds, for he was a shepherd. Since God appointed such prophets over his church, he no doubt thus intended to cast a reflection on the idleness and sloth of the priests. For though all the priests were not yet prophets, yet they ought to, I'm sorry, for though all the priests were not prophets, yet they ought to have been taken from that order. For the priestly order was as it were the nursery of the prophets. But when gross want of knowledge and ignorance prevailed among them, God chose his prophets from the other tribes, and thus exposed and condemned the priests. They ought, he indeed, to have been the messengers of the God of hosts, so as to keep the law in their lips, that the people might seek it from their mouth, according to what is said by Malachi, Malachi 2.7. But as they were dumb dogs, God transferred the honor of the prophetic office to others, but Jeremiah, as I have already stated, was a prophet as well as a priest. He begins in the second verse to speak of his calling. Footnote. 
The second verse begins with non-English word, which Calvin re renders nempa even, and takes it in an exegetic sense. But this is not its meaning. Our version is no doubt correct. To whom, through there is no pre preposition before it, it is yet found before the personal pronoun to him that comes afterwards. It is an idiom of the language, and the very same exists in Welsh, in which the version is literally the same with the Hebrew, a relative pronoun without a, pre without a preposition, followed by a personal pronoun with a preposition prefixed to it. It would be literally in English, whom the word of Jehovah, of Jehovah came to him. The Welsh also retains the peculiarity of the Hebrew in having prepositions prefixed to the pronouns and attached to them, though this is not the case generally with nouns. Non-English words. The verb to, as in the Hebrew, precedes its nominative. Came is before the word of Jehovah. It is, regular singular, it is rather singular that the Septuagint has rendered this relative by non-English words, which shows the Hebrew idiom was not understood by them. Editor and footnote. It would have indeed been to little purpose had he said that he came forth and brought a message. But he explains in the second verse that he brought nothing by what had been delivered to him by God, as though he had said that he faithfully declares what God had commanded him. For we know that the whole authority be belongs entirely to God with regard to the doctrine of religion, and that it is not in the power of men to blend this or that and to make the faithful subject to themselves. As God, then, is the only true teacher of the church, whoever demands to be heard must prove that he is God's minister. This is, then, what Jeremiah is now carefully doing. For he says that the word of Jehovah was given to him. He had before said the words of, of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah. But any one of the people might have objected and said, Why dost thou intrude thyself as though anyone is to be heard? For God claims this right to himself alone. Hence, Jeremiah, by way of correction, subjoins that the words were his, but that he was not the author of them, but the minister only. He says then that he only executed what God had commanded, for he had been the disciple of God himself before he undertook the office of a teacher. As to the beginning of his time and its termination, it has been briefly shown why he says that he had been chosen a prophet in the thirteenth year of Josiah, and that he discharged his office till the eleventh year of Zedekiah. Now that Josiah is called the son of Ammon, it is doubtful whether Josiah was properly his son. Ammon began to reign in his twenty-second year, and reigned only two years. Josiah succeeded him in the eighth year of his age. If we number the years precisely, Josiah must have been born when Ammon was in his sixteenth year, but it does not appear likely that Ammon was a father when he was sixteen years of age, for in this case he must have begotten a son in his fifteenth year, as the birth must have taken place nine months after. Then Josiah must have been begotten in the fifteenth year of Ammon's age. It is hence a probable conclusion that he was a son by law and not by nature, according to what it is to what is said afterwards of Zedekiah that he was Josiah's son because he was his successor while he was, as many think, his nephew, a brother's son.
It was a common thing to call the successors of kings their sons, who were their sons by law, and not, as I have said, by nature. It now follows. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Verse 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou came, camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Here Jeremiah explains more fully what he had already mentioned, that he had been called from above, for otherwise he would have presumptuously obtruded himself. For no one, as the apostle says, takes this honor to himself, but the call of God alone raises up prophets and teachers to their dignity. Hence, that Jeremiah might secure attention, he declares that he had been called to the prophetic office, and that by the clear voice of God. For this purpose, he says, that this word was given him, before I formed thee in the womb, footnote, more strictly in the inside or belly, non-English word. The specific term for womb is in the next sentence, non-English word, editor, and footnote. I knew thee. He introduces God as the speaker, that what he declares might be more emphatical, that it might be of more weight and more forcible, for if he had said simply in his own person that he had been made a prophet by God's voice, it would not have so much moved the hearers, but when he brings forward God as a speaker, there is necessarily more weight and force in what is said. I pass by here that might be more largely said on what is necessary in one's call, so that he may be attended to by God's people. For no one, by his own and private right, can claim this privilege of speaking, as I have already said, inasmuch as this is what belongs to God alone. But I have elsewhere spoken at large on the prophetic call. It is therefore enough now to point to such at such things as these as it were by the finger, and particular discussions must be sought elsewhere. For were I to dwell at large on every subject, my work would be endless. I will, therefore, according to my usual practice, give a brief exposition of this prophet. Jeremiah then says that he had been called by God for this end, that he might, on this account, gain a hearing from the people. God declares that he knew Jeremiah before he formed him in the womb. This is not said specially of the prophet, as though other men were, are unknown to God, but it, is said, but it is to be understood of the prophetic office, as though he had said, Before I formed thee in the womb, I destined thee for this work, even that thou mayest undertake the burden of a teacher among the people. And the second part is a repetition, when he says, Before thou camest forth from the womb, I sanctified thee. Sanctifi sanctification is the same as the knowledge of God, and thus we perceive that knowledge is not more prescient, but that predestination by which God chooses every single individual according to his own will and at the same time appoints and also sanctifies him for no one, as Paul declares, Second Corinthians 2.16, is according to his own nature fitted for the work. Since then the fitness of the gratuitous gift of God, it is nothing strange that God declares that he had sanctified Jeremiah after he had said, I formed thee man in the womb, and at the same time appointed thee for this particular work, and it was not in thy power to bring with thee a qualification for the prophetic office. I formed thee not only a man, but a prophet. This is the import of the passage. 
But they might find too much, who think that the prophet was sanctified from the womb as John the Baptist was, for their words mean no such thing, but only that is testified of Jeremiah, which Paul also affirms respecting himself in the first chapter of the epistle to the Galatians, but he was known by God before he was born. Jeremiah then was not actually sanctified in the womb, but set apart according to God's predestination and hidden purpose. That is, God chose him then to be a prophet. It may be asked whether he was not chosen before the creation of the world. To this it may be readily answered that he was indeed foreknown by God for the, before the world was made. But scripture accommodates itself to the measure of our capacities when it speaks of the generation of anyone. It is then the same as the, of it is then the same as though God had said of Jeremiah that he was formed man for this for this end, that in due time he might come forth a prophet. And no doubt the following clause is added exegetically: "A minor prophet for the nations I made thee." His sanctification then, as I have said, was not real, but intimated that he was appointed a prophet before he was born. It, however, seems strange that he was given a prophet to the nations. God designed him to be the minister of his church, for he neither went to the Ninevites, as Jonah did, Jonah 3.3, nor traveled into other countries, but spent his labor only among the tribe of Judah. Well, then, is it said that he was given as a prophet to the nations? To this answer, that though God appointed him especially for his church, Yet his teaching belonged to other nations, as we shall presently see, and very very evidently as we proceed. For he prophesied concerning the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and the Moabites. In short, he included all the nations who were nigh and known to the Jews. This was indeed as it were accidental, but though he was given as a prophet especially to his own people, yet his authority extended to heathen nations. No doubt nations are mentioned, including many, in order that the power and dignity of his teaching might appear more evident. It follows. Verse 6. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Verse 7. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. After having spoken of his call, the prophet adds that he at first refused his office, and he states this for two reasons. <coughs> first, that he might clear himself from every suspicion of rashness, for we know how much ambition prevails among men, according to what James intimates, that many wish to be teachers, James 3.1, and there is hardly one who is not anxious to be listened to. Since then, most men do too readily assume the office of teaching, and many boldly intrude into it. Jeremiah, in order to avoid the very suspicion of rashness, informs us that he was constrained to take the office. Secondly, he says that he refused the office that he might gain more esteem and render his disciples more attentive. But why did he refuse to obey God? when called to the prophetic function, because its difficulty frightened him, and yet this very reason ought to rouse readers to a greater attention, as it no doubt 
awakened hearers when Jeremiah spoke to them. If anyone asks whether Jeremiah acted rightly in refusing what God enjoined, the answer is that God pardoned his servant, for it was not his design to reject his call or to exempt himself from obedience or to shake off the yoke because he regarded his own leisure or his own fame or any similar considerations. Jeremiah looked on nothing of this kind, but when he thought of himself, he felt that he was wholly unequal to undertake an office so arduous, hence the excuse that is added to that of modesty. We then see that God forgave his timidity, for it proceeded, as, he would have just, as, he, as we have just said, from a right feeling, and we know that from good principles vices often arise. But it was yet a laudable thing in Jeremiah that he thought himself not sufficiently qualified to undertake the prophetic office, and that he wished to be excused, and that another should be chosen endued with more courage and with better qualifications. I shall proceed with what remains tomorrow. Prayer Grant, Almighty God, that as Thou, that, that as thou hast not only provided for Thine ancient church by choosing Jeremiah as Thy servant, but has also designed that the fruit of his labor should continue to our age. O grant that we may not be unthankful to thee, but that we may so avail of so great a benefit, avail ourselves of so great a benefit, that the fruit of it may appear in us to the glory of thy name. May we learn so entirely to devote ourselves to thy servant, and each of us be so attentive to the work of his calling, that we may strive with united hearts to promote the honor of thy name, and also the kingdom of thine only begotten Son, until we finish our warfare and come at length into that celestial rest which has been obtained for us by the blood of thine only Son. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.